sleep loss is so much more than feeling tired at an inappropriate time. It's associated with an impact upon our health at every level. Things like obesity, type 2 diabetes, and indeed, because of the suppression of the immune system, high rates of infection and indeed cancers. Hey guys, how you doing? So we are back with a brand new season of the podcast. My name is Dr. Rongan Chatterjee, and this is my podcast, Feel Better, Live More. So I hope you've had a good summer. I hope you found some time to switch off and relax. I am really, really excited about this new season. I've already recorded some absolutely fantastic conversations, which I cannot wait to share with you. If you are brand new to my show, welcome. And if you're a long-time listener, welcome back. So I want to start off today with a surprising fact. The tired brain remembers negative experiences, but forgets the positive ones. Now, is there a more powerful statement in favor of us going to bed earlier and prioritizing our sleep? You see, modern life has seen us push into the night, staying up later and extending our social and work lives around the clock. But today's guest says that this goes against what our bodies are innately wired to do. Russell Foster is Professor of Circadian Neuroscience at Oxford University and author of the fantastic new book, Lifetime, The New Science of the Body Clock and How It Can Revolutionize Your Sleep and Health. In our conversation, Russell explains that living out of sync with our circadian rhythms doesn't just lead to sleep disruption and tiredness. The further we stray away from them, the more we become vulnerable to chronic conditions such as obesity, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, cancer, suppressed immunity, dementia, and even mental illness. Now, I want to be really clear. Russell is one of the world's leading authorities on sleep and circadian rhythms, but he is not here to scare us. Rather, he wants to share the practical strategies that we can all use to get back on track. We talk about the science behind exposure to natural daylight at the right times. We talk about chronotypes and if there's anything you can do to change being a lark or an owl. And we also discuss the dangerous phenomenon of microsleeps and why 4am is the most dangerous time to be on the roads. We also cover the unique problems faced by night shift workers and new parents. We talk about sleep trackers and blue blocking glasses. And Russell is keen to bust the myth that we all need eight hours sleep or that we mustn't read on a Kindle before bed. He also reveals the best time of day to have sex. And a little clue, it's different depending on whether you want to conceive or relax. And if you are someone who goes to sleep fine, but wakes up during the night, there's some wisdom towards the end of our conversation that I am certain you will want to hear. This really is a fun-filled conversation full of facts and fascinating insights. I hope you enjoyed listening. Now, before we get started, I want to quickly mention some of the new options that are now available to listen to my podcast that you may not be aware of. Sponsor reads are essential for this show to come out each week as it does. There are around seven people involved with the production and editing of each show, and of course, they all need paying. The sponsors help us to do this. However, I fully appreciate that many of you would rather listen to the episodes 
without any sponsor reads at all. That option is available to all of you, both on Apple Podcasts and on Supercast for people who are on Android. It's only $3.99 a month. I think that is incredible value, under £1 per week. It's really easy to get involved. It will literally take you just a few seconds to sign up. All you have to do is click on the link in the episode notes in your podcast app. And just to be really clear, the podcast will continue to be free of charge each week for everyone. This subscription option is simply for those of you who would like to support the show and listen to ad-free episodes. Now, on the subject of sponsors, today's show is brought to you by one of my very favorite brands, Vivo Barefoot. Now, I've been wearing and recommending Vivo Barefoot shoes for around 10 years now, well before they started supporting my podcast. And they really have had a huge impact on my own life, as well as that of my family, many of my friends, and a lot of my patients. Now, I know a lot of you have taken advantage of their 20% offer over the summer, and you've got in touch with me to let me know how impactful these shoes have been for you and your family. I am so pleased to hear this. Lots of you have told me that your various aches and pains have gone away, like knee, hip, foot, and back pain. It's really great to hear, and something I have been hearing for years from friends, family, and patients. Today, I thought I would share with you why I think they are a great choice for our kids, as well as for adults. Now, the shoes that Vivo make for kids are thin-soled, so their feet can feel, grip, and flex, and they're wide, so feet and toes have the space to grow strong and move with a full range of motion to develop balance and agility. You may have heard me say on previous shows that these are the only shoes that I get for my children, and I really hope that in the future, more and more children wear minimalist shoes like these. So if you're interested in giving these shoes a go for your own kids, the Vivo Kids School range is now back in stock for the new school year. I know from personal experience that they sell out really, really quickly. So if you are keen to give them a go, I'd encourage you to go online as soon as you can. If you've never tried them before, it's risk-free to do so. They offer a 100-day trial for new customers. So if you're not happy, you can just send them back for a full refund. Vivo are giving 20% off to all of my podcast listeners. Terms and conditions apply. That is for the entire children's range and the entire adults range. All you need to do is go to vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more. And now, my conversation with Professor Russell Foster. There's a lot of things that I hope we get a chance to talk about in our conversation today. I thought one of the nice places to start would be with a phrase I've heard you say in one of your talks before, which is that alarm clocks stop the single most important behavioural experience we have. Yeah, and that's sleep, of course. And, and we've, we've so undervalued sleep. You know, we, it's been treated as almost an illness that needs a cure or an indulgence. And of course, in the 80s, those of us that remember the 80s, um, you know, people used to come and say, oh, I've done an all, another all-nighter. And then people used to clap them on the back. And in fact, you don't want people like that in the workplace. I mean, essentially, what we've discovered over the past sort of 
20 years or so is that sleep consolidates our memory, but it's not just the retention of facts. It, we're actually problem-solving. So if you want to come up with innovative solutions to complex problems, a night of sleep achieves that. We're also discovering that uh, the, the, the elimination of, of, of beta amyloid, this, this misfolded protein that's been associated with dementia, is packaged up and got rid of whilst we sleep. So much of the stuff going on within the brain and the body whilst we sleep defines our ability to function during the day. And, you know, it's, it's really, we've got to start embracing sleep. You know, as I, as I read through your book, and as I think about the literature, the work you're putting out there, I think about the impact that sleep deprivation has on our entire physiology. You know, this idea that's been sitting with me the last few days is that, number one, a lot of us don't realize how sleep deprived we are. Yeah. And I think in many ways, the way we experience the world is influenced by our levels of sleep. Yeah, I think that's, you know, during the research for, for the book, the realization that the tired brain remembers negative experiences but forgets the positive ones. So tired individuals' entire worldview is influenced by, by a negative salience. You know, we're making decisions, remembering the negative stuff and not the positive stuff. Um, that's just one example, I think, yeah. That's really profound, Russell, because if, if as a doctor I, I look around and I see how many problems we have these days with excessive negative thoughts that people struggle with. Yeah. And then if you look at the data in terms of how sleep deprived we are, yeah. potentially this is the smoking gun that's sitting there that if all of us start to pay a little bit more attention to, yeah. perhaps that would have a profound impact on the way we feel, and as you say, these negative thoughts. And across the whole demographic, from, from youngsters uh, and young youngsters, all the way through to the, to the elderly. Uh, it, I think it could make a, a huge difference. Yeah. So we're recording this uh, late morning. Uh, it is just past midday. So I know from your book now that we've just passed the danger zone, the most dangerous part of the day, right? So I feel Absolutely. good that we should celebrate with a glass. Phew, yeah. It's 12.01. <laughs> so can you explain a little bit about what is so dangerous about mornings and in particular this 6am to 12pm time period? Yeah, well, well, the, the biggie, of course, is stroke and heart attacks. Between 6am and 12 noon, there's almost a 50% greater chance of having a stroke or a heart attack. Wow. And of course, it represents the sort of the biological switch from the sleep resting state to the active state. So, so what our internal clocks are doing is anticipating increased activity. So even before we wake, blood pressure is going up, the mobilization of glucose is going up. Um, interestingly, the, the stickiness of platelets is going up, presumably anticipating an increased risk of, of damage and therefore the need to clot. Uh, and, and so cortisol is all, all going up, mobilizing our bodies for activity. Now, if you're healthy, it's not an issue. In fact, it's a, it's a wonderful adaptive response. So you can get out into the new environment and exploit it to the full. But if you have health problems, then that surge in blood pressure, that increased stickiness of the blood mm -hmm. is going to predispose to things like heart attack and stroke. And, and what's become very clear is that when you take your anti-stroke medication, your anti-hypertensives, really matters. So, for example, <clears throat> taking them before you go to sleep 
before bedtime rather than first thing in the morning over a sort of uh, four or five year window uh, can actually halve your chances of having a stroke or a heart attack. Now, that information isn't widely known. And, and I think we've got to try and get this sort of, this, this, this sort of knowledge more widely accepted. Yeah, a couple of things came up for me there, Russell. I remember, I'm going to guess, seven or eight years ago, uh, I was getting quite frustrated as a medical doctor with my lack of awareness over all kinds of things to do with our lifestyle and how it influences health. And I was yeah. thinking, if I knew a bit more about this and how to manipulate it, I'm sure I could help my patients more. And so I would go in my holidays around the world to various conferences. And I remember in America sitting at a conference and there was a cardiologist called Dr. Mark Houston. I remember him saying exactly this to me. Years ago, he was saying something like, most blood pressure medications should be taken in the evening. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, we're giving them all that in the morning. Yeah. And people are just taking them in the morning because it's easy. It's with breakfast, I'll just yeah. take it. So I think that was the first time that that lodged in my head that, yeah. oh, the timing of these medications is important. The other thing, Russell, that came up for me as you were speaking there, on the show, we've spoken a lot about stress in the past and what happens when the stress response gets activated. Yeah. And what you just described happening then in the early hours, just before we wake up, those are the, those are the things of the stress response, blood being more prone to clotting, blood pressure going up, cortisol going up. So it's almost like a mini stress response first thing in the morning. Indeed it is. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Stress gets a bad rap. I mean, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a shame. I mean, I, I liken stress... Um, as the sort of the first gear in, 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 in a car. You know, it gives you that wonderful acceleration. So it's great, you know. Um, but if you keep the engine in first gear, of course, you'll destroy it. And, and that's the problem with so much of our stress these days. It's not that it's an acute, quick shift. We're, for example, night shift workers, they're running on stress to keep awake and to keep functional during the night shift. And so no wonder there's all those health problems associated with that group. Yeah. You mentioned the clock, and there's there's a lot in your book about our body clock, our body clocks, I yeah. should say, yeah, and yeah. what they all do, what influences them. One thing I've felt and experienced when people, when my patients, when members of the public are thinking about sleep, they're often thinking about the evening. They're thinking about what do I do just before bed? What yes. do I do in those hours preceding me going to my bedroom. And of course, that's important. We're definitely going to yep. get to that. But I thought it would be useful, particularly through the lens of the clock, I guess, talk about the morning. Why is what we do first thing in the morning so important for our ability to sleep at night? Yeah. So we have this this circadian system, this sort of internal representation of a, a biological day. And what it does is anticipate the very demands of the rest activity, the sleep-wake cycle. Now, for it to be of any use, the internal day needs to be set to the real day, the astronomical day. And the classic mismatch between biological time and environmental time is jet lag. And we eventually get over jet lag as a result of exposure to the, the light-dark cycle in the new time zone. But what we require in any time zone is daily exposure to the light-dark cycle, and particularly morning light for 90% of us. Most of us have either a long body clock or a body clock that's slightly longer. And so it will naturally drift a little bit later and later and later each day. And the effects of light are not the same. Morning light 
advances the clock, makes, it, makes us get up earlier and go to bed earlier, whereas dusk light delays the clock. It makes us go to bed later and get up later. And so what morning light does to us is take this drifting clock and shoves it forward a bit in time so it's beautifully aligned. Now, of course, this is important at every level. I mean, we did a study a few years ago on, on teenagers and we found that, and, and all over the world, um, and found that the later the chronotype, the eveningness versus morningness, uh, the greater the evening light these young people got. So they were getting up after morning. Um, so not getting the morning light, which would advance the clock, but they were getting evening light, which would delay the clock. So part of their, their going to bed late and getting up late is when they were actually seeing light. And so morning light for most of us is really important to set the biological clock, which then aligns all of our activity, including the sleep-wake cycle, to the appropriate time of day. Yeah, so this is fascinating. There's so much there. So we live according to 24-hour days. Yeah. Okay. But one thing I'm aware of from your book and other research is that our internal clocks are not set to exactly 24 hours. So exactly. I want to I talk about that and why you think that might be, because we certainly, I guess, didn't evolve for plane travel in the future. Uh, you know, do you know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? Yeah, so, yeah. So, so when we go on a 12-hour flight to LA from London, yeah. we could adapt straight away, right? So that presumably wasn't evolution's goal. So I'm interested as to why it's not 24 hours in mm. your view, but also you say morning light. So does it matter what time of morning light that is? You know, can people get it at lunchtime? Are we talking as soon as people wake up? And of course that changes in the seasons, yes. right? So can you help us put okay. all those things together? Okay, so why isn't the human body clock exactly 24 hours? Well, now here's some hand-waving because the, the modelers say that if you want two oscillators to align to each other, two rhythms, one is fixed, obviously the, the rotation of the earth is fractionally under 24 hours. And if you want to fit a, a body clock to that, it helps if it's slightly different from 24 hours, because then it can a, a align more easily. Now, I don't pretend to understand the mathematics <laughs> behind it, but that's why, why it is. But there's, a, there's an easy... So Mother Nature knew what she was doing. She, of is course, as always. <laughs> um, but the really interesting question, I think, for me is, why is there such diversity in the human chronotype. So, the, you know, the fact that we have some people, you know, are really early larks and some people really late owls. There's a huge diversity, you know, to the extent that you can almost bed share in some extremes. Whereas if you look at the mice or any other animal you want to study, it's all very, very similar. And I think this is something that, that's puzzled me for ages. And it may well be that in our society, you know, and we've, we've only moved very rapidly from sort of essentially small groups, tribes, interacting, <clears throat> it may have been useful under those circumstances to have vigilance across the 24-hour mm. day and having some people that were sort of awake early um, and could perhaps alert the group that there was danger from another tribe, for example, or, or, or some sort of animal. And that may be why we've retained this extraordinary diversity. It's very, yeah. We're very weird as a species in that regard. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? You mentioned the word chronotype. Yeah. I wonder if you could just elaborate exactly what does chronotype mean? And then you also mentioned owls and larks. And I'm really interested in this because, A, me and my wife appear to have 
slightly different body clocks. But many people I feel, certainly if I look at my clinical experience, Russell, and this also I think speaks to this idea that the body clock isn't quite 24 hours, that we can manipulate it depending on what we need it to do or what the tribe needs or what the weather is, right? A lot of the time I think, well, are we evening types really evening types or are they evening types because of the modern light environment yes um so yeah quite a lot there <laughs> yeah yeah okay so, so what defines your chronotype whether you're a morning person or an evening person and there are a number of factors the first of all is one's genetics we now know that the clock genes and the proteins that they make subtle changes subtle polymorphisms in those genes are associated with morningness and eveningness so by their contribution to our genes our parents are still telling us what time to get up and go to bed <laughs> at, at some level so that's the first thing through development our chronotype changes so from about the age of 10 we want to start to go to bed a bit later and a bit later our lateness peaks in males at around about 21 21 and a half in in females about 19, 19 and a half. And males peak later, uh, or they have a later chronotype than females. Then from those late teens, early 20s, we start to move to a more morning chronotype. So by the time we're in our late 50s, early 60s, we're getting up and going to bed on average when we got up and went to bed when we were 10. And that sort of basically maps the changes in some of the sex steroids, testosterone and estrogen. So it's thought that there's a, a very important hormonal mod modification of, of, of the clock. So that's within individuals. We've that's all within got individuals. like, so whatever I'm born with, let's say I was born a morning type, and I think I'm a morning type. Then when I'm 10, in my teenage years, that's going to be pushed. It's going to be later and later. Yeah. As you say, for most males, a peak at 21 and then it's going to start going back again. But what about between individuals? There's variation huge, there as well, huge, right? Yeah, uh, a huge in individual variation. I think that's a really important point because, you know, in terms of our sleep-wake patterns, among our chronotype, there's massive individual variation. And, and you know, um, <clears throat> it, there's a, on average about a two-hour difference from somebody in their, from the, in their late 50s, early, uh, uh, early 60s, uh, to somebody in their late teens. So asking a, a teenager to get up at seven o'clock in the morning is like asking a, a 60 year old to get up at five o'clock in the morning. Now, does that matter? I guess there's a real interest here for me, given that my son's 12 and about to enter uh, these teenage years. Yes. And as a family, we prioritize sleep, or we certainly have done, but I'm, I'm already noticing with him a change yep. in terms of his desire to do what he has done in the past. Let's put it like that. Okay. Yeah, I think they call it testosterone poisoning, <laughs> don't they? <laughs> and what I'm interested in is when we say teenagers want to go to bed later and wake up later and we think about their chronotype, what if that teenager still went to bed early? So mm. what's driving the change? Is it the fact that they're going to bed late, therefore they're having to stay in bed later? Like, could that be environmental, school pressure, that sort of stuff? Or do, yeah. do you know what I'm getting yeah, at? Absolutely. Well, well, of course, the, the other factor, the sort of, as it were, the, the, the biological factor would be when you see light. As we, as we just discussed, sort of morning light advances the clock, evening light delays the clock. And teenagers, particularly over the weekend, will miss the morning light 
making them get up earlier, but they get the evening light, so they're or the afternoon evening light, and so they'll go to bed later. So those are the three sort of biological uh, factors. But then we have to add a couple of other things. One is, of course, the use of social media. Uh, it's very interesting. Many te teenagers appreciate that they shouldn't be using social media into the early hours of the morning, uh, but they feel uh, that sense of being connected to their group over overrides that knowledge about why it's important to be asleep. So there's that element. And in fact, it's really fascinating. Some studies have shown that that lateness can be hugely late. So what happens, of course, is that they have very shortened sleep. They're driven out of bed by an alarm clock or a parent. They struggle through the school day. Often, and when you, you know, talk to many teachers, the kids are actually falling asleep at the desks. So then they finish school and then they have not just a short nap, but it can be a nap of two hours or so, mm. which then pushes back the pressure to sleep that night. And so, so you know, the, the, the desire to use social media and the fact that they're not as tired because they had to sleep in the late afternoon means that they can function later um, uh, at night and they get that shortened sleep. And in fact, you have to be very careful because it can lead to increasingly shortened sleep at night and longer naps after school, which, you know, and you can fall into this sort of feedback loop of really disrupting the sleep. If that teenager could go to sleep, let's say, on time, at a more suitable time, given what time they have to get up for school or the school yeah. bus or whatever, the, yeah. the sort of fixing that they can't move, does the later chronotype still matter i.e. if they shift their environment. So actually, I'm still going, I'm going to go to bed earlier. I'm not going to expose myself to evening lights. This may sound optimal and hypothetical as <laughs> something that's practically impossible. But yeah. in theory, would that then normalize things, do you think? Yeah, you can shift teenagers to an earlier chronotype because of light exposure, absolutely. Uh, it practically, it's, it's, it's very difficult. Um, but it's, it, it's in theory yeah. possible, yeah. And this light exposure, whereas in the morning it advances the clock and in the evening it delays the clock, so pushes it back. What light exposure are we talking about here? Because let's say in the evening or at dusk you saw natural lights, not artificial lights. Yeah. Does that still do the same thing at pushing it back? Or does that have a different wavelength that doesn't affect us in the same way? Well, you're, you're sort of impinging upon what I've, I've sort of been working on for a long time, which is how does how does light interact with the body clock? And the first sort of extraordinary finding was that the visual cells within the eye, the rods and the cones, are not required to detect that dawn mm -hmm. dusk cycle there's a third photoreceptor within the eye and 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 those and we've been working out most recently how those receptors interact with this sort of master clock within the brain so that's one thing the second thing is that these photoreceptors need quite a bit of light so we don't really appreciate because our visual system is so good, but we live our lives in dim dark caves so uh, shortly after dawn um, natural light is some 50 to 100 times brighter than average domestic light conditions. Um, and, and so 
really what the clock is looking for is a bright light signal. And so we're talking in the hundreds to thousands of lux range. So if you think of, of natural light, okay, moonlight would be 0.01 lux, um, and a bright sunny day, even in, the, even in the UK, can just about get up to 100,000 lux. Mm. And those... Those weird, amazing photoreceptors need, as I say, this sort of 100 to 1,000 lux range. Now, it's complicated because it depends upon how long you're exposed to that light. So you can compensate to some extent for a lower light intensity by increasing the duration. And it's worth bearing in mind, until the late 80s, it was thought that the human circadian clock was not regulated by light at all. Uh, because when people use sort of relatively low levels of light that would shift the biological clock or entrain the biological clock of a mouse, it had no effect at all. But this is in humans. the 1980s, right? Yeah, yeah the late, I read 1980s. that this morning in your book, and, and that shocked me because 1987, right? Yeah. I was just finishing primary school. It's not... Maybe it is, but it doesn't seem that long ago to me. And I thought, when I read that, I, I had to reread it. This idea that back then, which wasn't that long ago, we didn't think light hugely influenced our circadian rhythm. And now that's considered fact. And I think, well, what else is going on oh, that we oh, don't know at the moment? Well, that's what's so exciting about this field. But I, I remember, you know, doing, doing my, my PhD. Um, and I, I got my PhD in, in, in 84. And... Uh, you know, when you did public talks or anything, people say, well, well how is it regulated? And so it's primarily social cues and food. And I remember being actually at that first presentation in, in 1987. And, you know, it was an audible gasp around me. Oh, my God, you know, you just need a lot of light. And of course, now we know light is incredibly important for the regulation of human circadian rhythms, but you need quite a bit of it. And this is where we fall into some problems because there's a lot of stuff out there saying <clears throat> you shouldn't look at a, at a Kindle immediately before you go to bed because it'll shift the biological clock. So the most detailed study, which was from a group at Harvard, asked people to look at a, a Kindle on its brightest intensity four hours before bedtime. And they asked them to do this on five consecutive nights. And after that, on the, on the fifth day, uh, sleep was delayed by an average of 10 minutes. And it was just statistical. And as one of my colleagues said, um, well, it may be statistically significant, but it's biologically meaningless. Wow. And so... But <clears throat> we do know that light in the evening can delay the clock. But how much and what intensity and for how long is still being resolved? Clearly, the brighter the light and the longer you see it before bedtime could shift the clock. But what we do know that light is doing is increasing alertness and therefore delaying sleep onset. So it's probably not the light from the devices changing the clock, but it's the light from the devices changing alertness and therefore delaying sleep. Yeah, super, super interesting. So if we just stick to what that study showed, that was on a Kindle. I know when I've heard you speak before that you regard kindles as quite different from smartphones or looking at social media perhaps you could explain why that is well because a kindle is 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 fairly you know you're just reading it basically whereas a smartphone you're checking your emails you're looking at social media you're checking the news you might even be listening to music at the same time and so these are really interactive devices and they will be increasing alertness and therefore delaying sleep onset yeah super interesting in terms of lights just to finish off in the evening then, 
we're talking about the complexities of light, you know, how much, how long for, all these kinds of things. Some people who are promoting health and well-being are talking about the importance of morning light, morning natural light. I know there's one neuroscientist in America who talks about getting 10 to 30 minutes, if you can, within half an hour of waking up. Okay, so that's very clear guidance. I want to. I want to know your view on that. The data are good for that. I mean, really, really. I mean, so for example, the the Ken Wright studies have shown beautifully that bright morning light, real light, not artificial light, can advance the clock and ha- and, and really shift individuals you know, two hours earlier. So there's there's no question about it. And you can mimic this in in the lab as well. So for example, ten thousand lux for thirty minutes uh, from a light box will also set the clock. So so the data are there pretty solid. So we say advance the clock. What if someone doesn't want to advance their clock and they wake yeah. up and they're like, you know what? I've got a a late work night out tonight and I won't be back for my normal time. And I've never thought of this question before, but I'm just intrigued. Might one then think, hey, for tonight, I'm actually going to not expose myself to light for a couple of hours because I want to delay that or is that hard to say it it, it probably will have a small effect (laughs) i mean the the tricky thing is for those 10 percent of individuals who are really morning types and 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 it's it's a shame really because most of their their colleagues will be intermediate to late types and of course they will be then forced on a friday and a saturday evening to stay up way beyond where they want to be and they sort of complain bitterly that um you know god all my friends that want me to stay up of course for the work environment, it's great. They yeah. can get up, you know, go to the gym early and then go on to work. Whereas most of us who are late types find that a struggle. So you're happy with that 10 to 30 minutes natural light recommendation? Would yes. you would you would you ideally have people do that as soon as they can after waking? Yes. Certainly. The, the, the earlier the bigger the the effect, yes. And, and it's and it's very important um, ac- across the spectrum. So, for example, in the nursing home environment, up until fairly recently, the light in those uh, nursing homes was really low. I mean, terribly low. Some cases in the television room, it would be just sort of 10, 20 lux. I mean, crazy low. Uh, now people are realizing that if you increase the light in the day spaces, then you can actually improve the sleep-wake behavior of, of, of individuals in a nursing home. And where it's been looked at in individuals showing mild dementia, you could actually improve cognition by 10% simply by increasing the light within inside and and also using other tricks like, you know, having breakfast by a window where there's a lot of light coming through. Wow, that's fascinating. And then in terms of evening, I want to draw a distinction between natural light and artificial light. So let's say you live in a country where you have long light evenings at particular times of the year, like the UK, for example. You want to get your morning light in the morning, which is clearly a lot easier in a UK summer than it is in the winter. What happens if you want to be outside in the evening? So it's, it's still natural. It's not your screen. It's not social media. It's not the news. It's not all that attention stimulating information. Mm. Is there something going on in natural light where actually you know, the evening light perhaps doesn't shift the clock as much or... or or, or, or does that still do it? Well, of course, when we're all agricultural workers, we got 
symmetrical exposure to dawn and dusk. Yeah. And so, you know, the morning light would advance us, but then that was counteracted by the, the dusk light, which would delay us. And so it, so it was fine. And the problem that many of us face now is that we get asymmetrical exposure to the dawn-dusk cycle, which invariably means most of us will miss morning, but get lots of, of dusk light, uh, and therefore get up later. We'll de- delay the clock. Now, in terms of the quality, we've, we've talked about the intensity, we've talked about the duration, um, but we should also touch about the color, the wavelength of light. Now, those specialized photoreceptors are maximally sensitive in the blue part of the spectrum. In fact, intriguingly, if you look at the blue of a really beautiful blue sky, that's where they're maximally sensitive. Um, so, So there's been a suggestion that actually only blue light is important. But again, it's more complicated than that, because the response is like a bell-shaped curve. It's maximally sensitive in, in, in the blue, but of course, it, it doesn't mean that they won't the receptors won't detect shorter uh, wavelength uh, or indeed longer wavelength light. Again, it's how long you're exposed to it. We also now know, which has turned out to be really confusing, that the rods and cones which we know are not required for the regulation of the clock, talk to those specialized photoreceptors so they can modulate their activity. Some of, them, some of the rods and cones seem to add sensitivity and others seem to inhibit the responses. So it's turning out to be really complicated yeah. um, and we don't fully understand why. So the best advice would be, let's say someone is trying to get on top of their circadian rhythm and their sleep... And they feel, either for work reasons or for other reasons, they're going to bed too late. The best advice at the moment would be to try and limit light exposure in the evening. Even if it's natural light, you still want to be a bit careful. Yeah. And and if you are an extreme late type and you really are struggling, then what you need to do is um, set the alarm and either get outside first thing in the morning or get a light box which will advance the clock and make it easier for you to get up for job or, or whatever reason. Yeah. yeah. I know you were on uh, the Chris Evans Breakfast Show recently talking about your book and... Um, I remember in that conversation, Chris said, because he, for many years, is you know, presenting on live radio, I think at the moment at 6.30 a.m. And I think he said to you that he goes to bed at 7 p.m. or he at least puts an eye mask on at 7 p.m. So it's reducing how much light is coming through his eyes. I think he said in that conversation with you, it had yeah. a massive difference. And then when he wakes up at 4 a.m., he puts all the lights on in his bedroom as bright as possible. And that's really interesting. And and I know he was saying it's had a huge difference for him. And of course, it it maps onto exactly what we know about the system. He's doing exactly the right thing for what his requirements are, which is to get up early and then perform early. Yeah. And this is where I feel it's very empowering for people, even if they were to find out their chronotype and then to find out that, man, my job is actually in disharmony with my natural chronotype, Mm. you can do things, can't you, to manipulate it so you're maybe not as vulnerable as you might have been. That's right. And and I I think we tend to feel as though our body clock is this fixed thing, just like our sleep-wake cycle. And it's not. It's dynamic and influenced by a whole range of different factors that can be tweaked to our advantage. Yeah. So interesting. You know, Russell, one of the things that's helped my sleep a lot over the past years, quite a few things recently. One is to avoid any sort of emotional stimulation in the evening. So I've, this has probably been going for six or seven years now, I've had to educate 
the people around me, particularly my family, yeah. that I, I, I go to bed early, I wake up early, I just it suits me. I don't know if I am actually a morning type. I certainly live like a morning type. But then I set everything up around that because ever since my kids were born, they've always got up really early. And I know for me, I'm a much better human being when I've had time for myself in the morning before anyone else is there. So I would shift it back so that I could have an hour to myself before they wake up. So I'm I'm now in a position where I usually go to bed by nine o'clock at the latest and I'm up by 5am at the latest. When I can stick to that consistently, I feel fantastic. Yeah. And that's exactly what we should all be doing. We should be defining, you know, what what our biological needs are and also, of course, what our social needs are or societal needs are and particularly our work and try and tune uh, ourselves accordingly. Yeah. Um, You know, it's it's so important. Yeah. And so that, that process required me to help people around me understand that, look, after seven, half seven, I really do not want to be contacted with anything unless it's an emergency. <laughs> I know. And, and of course, <laughs> it's very difficult because, of course, um, towards bedtime is the only time when many couples get chance to talk about stuff. Yeah. But of course, it can be charged. And so, so, for example, I have banned any discussion of family finances before we go to bed or anything like that. You have to carve out time at a, <laughs> at a yeah. different time. The other thing that's interesting about your earlier bedtimes, of course, is you'll be eating much earlier. Yeah. And that can be very important. I mean, the, the data now are very clear that trying to concentrate one's calorie intake during breakfast and lunchtime and a very light supper or an earlier supper that, that you can possibly manage um, is better for our metabolic health and reduces the chances of weight gain, uh, obesity and, and type 2 diabetes. So, so you, you have a, a double advantage there by going to bed earlier. Yeah, we'll, we'll come back to that. So I think that's a really important point and that really speaks, I think, to this wider issue, which is a lot of the things that we would optimally do to optimise our circadian rhythms, optimise our sleep, optimise all these different functions in, in our bodies sometimes have to be done in conflict with what society yeah. is driving us to. And I think there's a much wider piece there. Just to finish off on light, at least for the for the moment, because I think it will keep coming back and it's so yeah. important. One of the things that has really helped me over the last years is, you know, I, I try my best not to be on my screen before bed. Uh, usually I'm good with that, although I'm human and, mm-hmm. you know, I, I fall prey to the temptation like anyone else might do. I try and read before bed. Mm-hmm. And in my bedside lamp, I've now changed maybe for a couple of years maybe not even quite that long, but certainly recently I put these low lux bulbs in. So I've got this like amber low lux bulb. Now, I really feel it's made a massive difference the way I feel. It just feels softer. And whenever, if I'm in another room or staying somewhere where they've got a usual bulb and I think, wow, this is quite obnoxiously bright. So are these things helpful in your view? They are indeed. Um, it, it sort of maps on, again, to the, to the biology. This is what you, you'd certainly recommend um, because the lower the light, uh, you'll reduce uh, alertness and it'll be easier to get to sleep. And, of course, if it's bright light, then, of, of course, you, you will shift the clock. But, but um, you know, most, most artificial light is not going to have much of an effect.
Just taking a quick break to give a shout out to Bon Charge, who are sponsoring today's show. Now, you're hearing in this conversation with Professor Foster just how important our light exposure is for our sleep and our body clock. And as I just mentioned, I now have amber low light bulbs in my bedside lamps, and they have made a huge difference to me and my children. The bulbs I have are from the company Bon Charge. Now, many of you will have heard me talk about the brand Blue Blots for the past few years on my show. Blue Blots recently decided to change their name and rebrand as Bon Charge. Bon means good, charge means energy, which I think really symbolizes what they are here to do. Bond Charge have a whole range of wellness products to help you get more out of life. My wife, myself, and both of my children regularly wear their blue light blocking glasses, especially in the evening. I also use their blackout eye masks, especially when I'm on the roads, and I find them very effective and very comfortable. I also really like their EMF protection earbud air tubes, which I got a few months ago and are now my go-to headphones. I really would encourage you to check them out. If you go to bondcharge.com forward slash live more and use the coupon code live more, they are giving an incredible 20% off of all of their products to my listeners. That's B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E.com forward slash live more and use the coupon codes live more to save 20%. Athletic Greens are also supporting today's show. Now, I think we all know that good quality nutrition is an essential pillar to get right for our physical health. It also plays a huge role in our mental and our emotional health. And in an ideal world, there's no doubt I would prefer it if everyone was able to get all of their nutrition from real whole food. But I know from 21 years now of seeing patients that a lot of us struggle to find the time to consistently do that. That's why I am a fan of good quality whole food supplements like AG1 by Athletic Greens. One tasty scoop contains 75 whole food source ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, prebiotic, green superfood blend, and more in one convenient daily serving. It helps support energy and focus, aids with gut health and digestion, and it also helps support a healthy immune system. Now, many of you write to me and let me know the benefits you have experienced since you started taking AG1. More energy, better digestion are common things that you feed back to me, but it's also not uncommon for me to hear that AG1 has also helped improve your sleep. Now, AG1 has been in my own life for around three years now, and I genuinely think it is one of the best whole food supplements out there. It's also really tasty. So if you want to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend it. If you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you can access an exclusive special offer where they're offering my audience five free travel packs and a free one year supply of vitamin D, a critical nutrient for our immune system. You can see all the details by going to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. But the other thing, of course, is that what you're doing is defining the sleeping space. 
Um, and so, for example, you know, we've, we need to sort of reinforce the fact that the bedroom or the sleeping space is what you do when you want to go to sleep. Mm-hmm. So you, you know, have a, a lovely mattress, you have great pillows, you, you might even have a distinctive smell like lavender or something else mm-hmm. because you associate that distinctive smell with the sleep state. And I know people who, when they go and they try travel and they're staying in a hotel room, they'll take a partner's perfume or aftershave mm. because that defines the sleeping space for them. So the extent to which those are almost placebo effects, it doesn't matter. If they work, then it, it, you should embrace them. When it comes to blue light blocking glasses, yeah. I'm interested what your views are. Before you answer that, I will say as a clinician, what I have found is for some people, they appear to have been transformative. Mm-hmm. Now, what does the science say? What is your view based upon all your years of research? Yeah, I mean, I mean, blue light blocking glasses were sort of originally introduced because it was thought that blue light would promote age-related macular degeneration. And the evidence for that is a bit mixed. Certainly, you'll get more damage with blue light in uh, a laboratory setting. So sort of if you expose cells to, to, to blue light, there's a greater chance of, of those cells um, undergoing apoptosis, They're, you know, d- d- those cells dying, as it were. But when that's translated to the natural realm, it's not clear that blue light is having um, uh, much of a f- uh, an effect on age-related macular degeneration. This has also been studied in the context of, of um, cataracts. So, for example, uh, blue-blocking lenses have, have been introduced to reduce uh, the blue light getting in and therefore age-related macular degeneration. The evidence for that um, is not great. There was a lot of concern that these blue blocking lenses were also going to disrupt the clock because after all the clock is maximally sensitive to blue light uh we've done some studies showing that it doesn't matter whether you use a blue blocking or a uv blocking Mm. uh it, it doesn't and in fact it's quite interesting most artificial lenses allow less blue light through than a natural lens so we would be naturally exposed to more blue light anyway. So uh, I don't I, I think that's where this sort of the origins of these 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 lens these blue blocking um, glasses and things are used. Now in terms of the circadian system and the arousal systems, we do know that blue light is the most effective wavelength, and Christian Kjochen has done this from Switzerland, in uh, increasing alertness. So if you want to reduce alertness in the evening, it's likely that a blue blocking a set of glasses will be useful. Will it be useful in terms of the clock? Well, possibly. Mm. Um, but it depends, again, how long, how bright the, the environmental light is. I guess this speaks to a much wider point, which I think comes through in all the work, all the talks I've seen of yours, everything I've read in your book. It's this idea that sleep is highly individual. Yeah. And I know there's many myths out there that you're keen to bust, one of them being that we all need eight hours. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was part of the motivation for for writing a lifetime because I think there's been a tendency to to feel that, you know, we have to have a certain, we've got to get eight hours. And I remember one person came up to me and they said, I don't get eight hours of sleep. Am I going to die? And I sort of said, well, I can assure you, you will die. But it may not be anything to do with not getting eight hours of sleep. 
And, you know, because I'm being a bit flippant, but, but actually the natural sort of span for humans is six hours to maybe 10, 10 and a half hours. And so that's in the, in the natural range. And I think people get very anxious that if they're not getting eight hours, you know, they're going to, it's, it's going to be a disaster. Now, I think you have to be careful um, because the, the tired brain is very good at fooling itself that it's okay. So you need to really be uh, tough about assessing what your sleep needs are. Um, and if you can function optimally during the day, if you're feeling fine, then chances are you've had a good night of sleep. If you need an alarm clock to drive you out of bed in the morning, if it takes you a long time to wake up, if you crave caffeinated drinks, if your family, friends, work colleagues say, oh, you're being a bit, you know, where's your sense of humour? You know, you're a bit more irritable. And critically, if given the opportunity to sleep longer on free days or indeed on holiday, you sleep much longer. That's all telling you you're not getting enough sleep. So what we all have to do as individuals is define how much sleep that we need for optimal daytime performance. And I guess that would also depend on what we're doing, right? Because let's say, I don't know, that you have define that, hey, you know what, I keep hearing about the eight hours, but I think I sleep for, I don't know, six hours 30 each night or six hours 45. Yeah. And I'm fine. And I wake up without an alarm clock and I've got energy and I feel emotionally quite with it, you know. Yeah. But then let's say you start, I don't know, training for a half marathon or maybe at the weekends you go on long runs or something. It's also having that awareness to go, well, yeah, in the week, I may be okay with this amount. But actually, if I'm really exerting myself physically and I have a desk job Monday to Friday, maybe I need more at the weekend. And I guess the reason, I don't know what your view would be on that. One of the reasons I asked that is because I I think Roger Federer is well known to, is it 10 hours or 12 hours a night? He, I think he talks a lot about how much sleep he has and how important that is to his optimal performance as a tennis player. Yeah. A few little subtleties there. Do you think physical activity levels um, make a difference in terms of how much we need? And I guess, how would you put all that together? Well, of course, the, the famous long sleeper was Albert Einstein, um, who basically sat at his desk uh, for, for every day. Um, and he needed, he, he craved 10 hours of sleep. So I think that it's probably influenced by athletic performance. Uh, and certainly... Um, there are some data suggesting that really strong training is associated with slightly longer sleep, but it's not an overwhelmingly increased amount of sleep. Right. Uh, and I think, you know, Federer just needs that amount of sleep yeah. um, and for his optimal performance, same way that Einstein did. And, I, you know, in the book, I talk, I compare Einstein to Salvador Dali. You do. Um, and, um, you know, I sort of, it, it's great, you know, undergraduate lectures, you know, I say, well, Einstein, a classic, sort of slept 10, 10 and a half hours, so, yeah, perfect example of long sleep genius. And then, you know, one of the students said, well, what about Salvador Dali? You know, he only, he, he didn't sleep at all, really. And his trick was, of course, to hold a, a metal spoon uh, um, in his hand and sit in a chair and when the spoon dropped from his hand when he fell asleep it hit a metal plate on the floor and woke him up but of course Dali was the first to recognize that his altered state of mind because of his chronic lack of sleep gave him the sort of surreal vision to generate the art that he generated um yeah um. so it depends what's the goal <laughs> it depends what right? the goal, if the goal is, yeah. is to hallucinate and have an altered state of consciousness yeah 
and you need that for your job, you know what? Sleep yeah. deprive yourself all you want. Yeah, it, that's true. <laughs> it, it may make you impossible to live with, um, as uh, Dali, of course, was. <laughs> so, yeah, but but if you want an altered state of consciousness, then decide, you know, d- d- deprive yourself of sleep. Well, maybe now's a good point in the conversation to make the case for sleep, right? First of all, how sleep deprived are we as a society? And then secondly, what are those consequences? Yes. Uh, sleep deprivation varies a lot because, of course, sleep need varies a lot. Um, but I think on average, people are saying that we're sleeping one, maybe two hours less than we were in the 1950s. And I, and I, I'm, I'm, I think those data are, are pretty robust. And certainly that's the case in, in adolescence, big time. Um, and so what are the consequences? Well, short-term sleep loss we see changes in our emotions uh, and our cognitive performance. So uh, we increased levels of irritability, the failure to process information accurately. We do stupid and unreflective things. We are less empathetic. I mean, it's really fascinating. You, we, we fail to pick up the social signals uh, of friends and family. Um, we're less socially connected. We have uh, reduced capacity to remember things. We are less creative. Um, so all the things, reduced sense of humor. I mean, you know, all the yeah. things that make us this extraordinary creature, you know, this amazing humans. You know, all this creativity and wonderful and interconnectedness goes as a result of, of, of even short-term sleep loss. Longer term, as many individuals are experiencing at the moment, is associated with this falling asleep uncontrollably, so microsleeps. And it's estimated in the States that 100,000 crashes on the American freeway are as a result of people falling asleep at the wheel. The American Automobile Association suggests it's much greater than that, perhaps as high as 300,000. And of course, if you're falling asleep at the wheel, you you can't stop yourself. So those crashes tend to be really bad crashes. We also see that there's changes in immune uh, responses. So it's likely because we're chronically tired, we're activating in a sustained way the stress axis. And that's going to push up blood pressure. It's going to throw glucose into the circulation. So it pre then disposes to things like obesity, type 2 diabetes. And indeed, because of the suppression of the immune system, higher rates of infection and indeed um, cancer. Some very convincing studies showing that night shift work, for example, uh, night shift nurses have higher rates of colorectal cancer and breast cancer. In fact, those data are now so good that the World Health Organization has listed night shift work as a probable carcinogen. So so I, I think the really key point is that chronic sleep loss is so much more than feeling, feeling tired at an inappropriate time. It's associated with an impact upon our health at every level. Yeah, I mean, what you just went through there, it, it, it impacts negatively our, our day-to-day lives. You mentioned empathy. I mean, what do we need for good quality relationships yeah. with partners, children, work colleagues, family? We need empathy. Yeah, and, 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 and or invariably in the workplace, you need creativity. You need people to be able to work together. You want to reduce irritability. You need often yeah. a good sense of humour. And so really, we should be really promoting good sleep to Im- improve productivity. Yeah, it speaks to something you said earlier on in our conversation, that when we are sleep deprived, 
we forget all the positive experiences and remember the negative ones, which of course completely alters your view and perception of the world. It feels like this dark, scary place rather than an uplifting, hopeful, joyful place. Mm. You mentioned, yes, these short-term consequences, but also these pretty scary long-term consequences. Now, one thing I really appreciate about the messages you try and put out there into the public is you you really seem to be trying to help promote health without scaring people. Now, of course, these statistics are scary. And there's two groups of people I want to keep at the forefront of our mind now as we think about these negative side effects. We mentioned shift work, and I want to talk about shift work because what I read in your book is that one in eight UK workers currently are shift workers that's probably only going to increase. That's a lot of people. And I can't imagine what it's like for a shift worker to just hear what you said the WHO say, which is a probable carcinogen. That's not a nice thing to hear if you work shifts, if you're a, whatever, if you're a nurse looking after people to help their health and you think, yeah, but at the same time, I'm wrecking mine in the process. So shift work is something I want to talk about. But also the other thing I've noticed as I've been trying to raise awareness of sleep now in books and podcasts for maybe five years. Unwittingly, we can often end up scaring people and making them feel worse and more anxious. Now, young parents often will get in touch and say, look, Wrong, you know, uh, love what you love what you said. You know, I understand about sleep, but I'm really worried. Mm-hmm. My three-month-old doesn't sleep through the night you know, or whatever is going on, so many parents get really scared when they hear this sort of stuff. So if we address parents, first of all, short-term sleep deprivation, long-term, is it okay for a few years of a parent sleep deprived? You know, help us sort of get less scared about that if you can. Yeah, well, I think there's two issues here. Um, One thing that that our society, or the de- in the developed nations at least, uh, has shifted very rapidly from the extended family yeah. to the nuclear family, where the parents become the sole providers for their children. Um, and it's usually the mother. And uh, what's happened up until fairly recently is that childcare was a distributed activity. And so when the mum got tired, there was an aunt or a sister or a friend who would take over so that the mum can get some sleep. And if you look at the primate societies, uh, you see that uh, care is distributed across the group. We have never evolved to be the sole parents, as it were, of, of our children. And I think the first point to make is that Young mums in particular, but, 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 but both parents, uh, should not be afraid to reach out. And I think there's this sort of terrible guilt that I can't cope because I'm feeling tired. Well, no surprise. We'd never evolved to, to look after our children in this manner. So before babies are born, it's really important to think about the support network that you can put in place to, to, to try and mitigate some of the, the chronic sleep loss. Now, what are the long-term consequences of this? It's, it's not clear. Uh, I suspect that there are probably buffers that kick in that actually um, prevent some of, the, some of the damaging effects of, of chronic sleep loss during those sort of few months. Yeah. I don't know. Um, and in fact, I think it's a really important area of, of study. Yeah, I think 
you know, what you said there, I think is really helpful. First of all, just recognize that the way we're bringing kids up now is tough. Yeah. We never have to do it like this. You know, recently, Russell, my wife's father has been away in Kenya for a couple of months, see his family. Mm. And my mother-in-law has been staying with us on and off for a couple of months. Mm. And let me tell you the difference. You just, it's, it's little things, but just having a third adult in the house when it comes to childcare, it, it, it's not just one more person. It, it seems to have changed everything. The whole dynamic the changes. The whole dynamic yeah. changed. Yeah. I, I was Absolutely. like, this is incredible. This is what humans have always done. Yet yeah. many of us have moved away for work, for opportunity. We don't have those support systems. So I thought that hopefully takes the pressure off people to at least go, yes, I know it's hard, but yes, it is hard. It really is hard. You're, mm. not, you're not broken. It's not that you can't no. cope. No, none of us can cope with that. Yep. So I think that's a really nice message. But also that message, you can reach out, you know, yes. maybe you need to phone a friend and say, hey, listen, I'm knackered. Could I just have a nap? Could you come while I have a nap? And it's not a sign of weakness. Yeah. It's, it's actually, you know, em- embracing our biology in a sense. Um, and and I, it's, it's tragic that I think that young parents don't know that um, and feel guilty about it. It's, it's simply wrong. And, it, and it's, you know, it's so many unintended consequences that we're facing at the moment and and sort of with increased wealth and independence you know we think right you know we don't have to live with our parents anymore or we can move a long way away from them and yet we've we've lost something in the process i mean i was you know, my, my, I was my, I'm very close to my grandparents who looked after me while my, my mother was working. And it was a, as you, as you say, it was a mental, you know, a, a big thing. So mummy's coming home and it was all, you know, excitement and, yeah. and you have that dynamic environment. Um, and clearly, you know, we are where we are, but, but people shouldn't be afraid to reach out. I think that's so important. Let's talk about shift work. Um, there's all kinds of things. There's a huge section on shift work in the book, which I think will be very helpful for anyone. We mentioned how many people, of course, are shift workers. Yeah. We mentioned the potential health problems of that. Yes. You know, something I read in your book, which I found fascinating, was that over 90% of night shift workers, was it even 97%? 97, yeah. They don't adapt. No. And, and so that's going back to light again. So you've got relatively dim light uh, within the workplace, within the office or the factory. And then, of course, on the journey home uh, or on the journey in, you're going to, ex- or during the day, you're going to experience bright natural light. And the clock always defers to the brighter light signal as being daytime. So the assumption for, b- b- by employers... The clock, the clock always defers to the brighter light signal. I think that's a really yeah. powerful thing. And we that's why we with. don't shift. And in fact, there, there's one group, um, there's a lovely study from the University of Surrey, Josephina Rent, and we you know that, that 3%, some of them are North Sea oil workers, oh. because what happens is they're out on the rig at night under these great arc lights, and then they're in windowless metal boxes during the day. And they do switch, and so they become nocturnal, as it were. Wow. Then, of course, it's really tough for them because then they have two weeks of shore leave and they're completely maladapted to their friends and family. But, the, the, you know, the serious issue is you, you, you don't adapt. And, and, and so I remember 
chatting to uh, the chairman of the CBI oh, many years ago now and, and you know, giving a speech saying, we're going to cure the problems of British industry by running it on a 24-7 basis. No need to build lots of offices in London, you know, the rush hour, etc., etc. Deeply well-meaning individual. No idea of the biological consequences and the assumption that, that the clock will adapt to the demands of working at night. And for 97% of people, it doesn't. We're not machines... We're human no. beings, right? Absolutely, yes. And uh, I think you could you could you but, could apply but, that across all kinds of different well, things in society. It, it is fascinating because we we are we've achieved so much. I mean, you know, it's we shouldn't. I mean, it's phenomenal what we've achieved as as a as a as a as a, as a species. Um, but we are. It comes with some some massive arrogance. And what we've assumed is that we can do whatever we like whenever we choose. And because we've invaded the night cheaply with electricity since the 1950s onwards, we've invaded the night and have thrown away that really important part of our biology, which is sleep. That's interesting. It was only in the 1950s when we've Big acceleration. Well, we've yeah. really aggressively invented yeah. that. That's not long. No. Through an evolution lens, that's just a blink. Yeah, and, and clearly, you know, we've been creeping in. You know, yeah. The aristocrats were using candles. And in fact, a, a sign of wealth was you would eat later in the evening and you'd light your... But remember, a candle, you know, in the early 19th century was the equivalent of a, of a working man's daily wage. So only the rich could, yeah. could have light. And of course, why would you burn fat, which is what candles were made of, when this is food? And of course, food... Food was incredibly scarce for so many people, working people, 200 years, 150 years ago. We'll stay on shift work for the minute, but this doesn't just apply to shift work. Driving, driving tired, and a pretty alarming statistic in your book about what it means to drive at 4am for most people. Yeah, well, well, Drew Dawson has done a wonderful study. Drew Dawson's based in, in Australia. And he compared the cognitive performance, the loss of one's ability to process information um, uh, across the day and found a very you know poor cognition around about four o'clock in the morning where, where it got to its lowest point. Um, and he compared that with the loss of cognitive ability with consuming sufficient alcohol to make you legally drunk. And on the scale, it was about a minus 15 um, dropping cognition when you were legally drunk. But at four o'clock in the morning, it was minus 20. So, so if, if listeners take nothing from, from this at all, other than the fact that if you're driving at four o'clock in the morning, your ability to process information is worse than if you were legally drunk. Okay, this, this is big, right? Because we've touched a few times on this this whole societal condition, what we're being asked to do now or what we think we have to do to fit in with society versus what's biologically optimal. Some people, of course, have to get up early for work. Some people now drive through the night. Lorry drivers, you know, big big cargo in the back. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, I'm sure they've got certain regulations, certain things that they do in order to be less tired uh, at that time. But, you know, driving at 4 a.m., for most of us being worse than when we might be legally drunk. That's pretty alarming. It's extraordinary. And uh, because also then let's think about, look, I'm, I don't really do this anymore, but if I think about my social culture in my 20s and 30s, you know, you go to a mate's wedding, mm-hmm. right? There'll be some late nights, a few drinks, and then you drive home on the Sunday, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, you're, you're you know, uh, just to be super clear, you know, you, you're, you're fully sober, yes. you know, 
culturally it's okay. Oh yeah, I'm knackered. I've just got to drive now for four hours. Yeah. But we're putting people's lives at risk, we not are, just our own. We're, we're, we're putting yeah. other people's lives at risk. So, so culturally, yeah. this idea of driving when tired, I think is something we all need to face. Well, I think it's like smoking. We're not only um, endangering our own health, but um, the collateral damage is that we're harming uh, other people. But people will do are, this. Uh, yes. And uh, but I think it's, again, it's, it's a matter of education and, and a failure to appreciate. Um, you, you know, junior doctors, a study published fairly recently showed that 57% had either had a crash or a near miss on the drive after the night shift. Uh, so, so now, again, we're, we're going into scary territory. But the key point is there's stuff we can do about it. We're not going to put the 24-7 society, mm. you know, genie back in its bottle. So what can we do to mitigate yeah. some of these problems? Well, knowing that we're going to be vulnerable to having a crash on the drive home, then we, sh or, or employers, and I think there's a serious duty of care yeah. here, is they should make available or subsidise the use of devices you can put on the dashboard that measure head nod or the fact that the car is veering and alert you to that and and, and that you know an alarm goes off and make sure you you know you're woken up and of course many high-end German cars ha now have this technology they, really? built built in yeah um, but that's something that that, that that could be done knowing that um, night shift workers have higher rates of cancer coronary heart disease diabetes 2 etc etc why don't we institute uh, higher frequency health checks you know every six months for these individuals to catch these conditions before they come mm. become chronic what food do we provide for our night shift workers you know higher rates of cancer you know coronary heart heart disease, all the rest of it, high fat, high sugar. Nobody, to my knowledge, is actually supplying easy-to-digest, high-protein snacks to their workforce throughout the night. Now, it's tricky because if you're tired, you're programmed to eat more sugar. Um, but, but, but at least we should make that option available. But why, why high-protein? Um, because it doesn't have the same impact as carbohydrates and fats on coronary heart disease and indeed cancer. But that would be quite easy, right? Let's say for yes. a hospital which is staffed at night, yeah. it would be quite easy either to have those snacks or to work with a nutritionist and make in bulk protein shakes full of phytonutrient-rich foods that are easy to digest, that are tasty, that they could give people. It, it's not that hard. No, and, and in fact, I think there's a phenomenal commercial opportunity here. Somebody should develop this and make it available to, you know, a, a very significant percentage of the yeah. workforce. Yeah. Uh, so, and the other area I think is is education in some sectors uh, the divorce rate is six times higher uh, in the night shift compared to the day shift and six uh, times, six times. So what we should be providing is education, not only for the individual who's doing the night shift, so they're aware of some of the consequences, but so that the people they live with also understand that they're not turning into monsters. But this is a, a kind of the biological consequence of driving your biology outside of its normal range. Um, and one other area, which I think is worth trying is that we talked about this great diversity of chronotype, whether you're a morning type or an evening type across the population. Well, wouldn't it be smart to chronotype your workforce so that, for example, the late types did the later shift and the morning types did the morning shift? What you want to avoid, of course, is putting a late type onto a morning shift, mm. which is a, is a really bad idea. So, uh, you know, as I say, we've got to be pragmatic, but I think there are things that we can do now to mitigate some of these problems. Yeah. We don't want to be too scary, but um, I can't stop thinking about that 
as a doctor myself, that 57% figure. Yeah. I have told this story, I think at least twice on this podcast, where when I was a SHO, a senior house officer, so I think second or third year after qualifying, after a, what would it have been? Probably a 36-hour shift, certainly yeah. between 30 and 36 hours. I properly fell asleep on the M60 in traffic. Um, yeah. Thankfully, I, I think I fell asleep in a traffic jam and then I was only woken up by horns because the jam had, you know, moved yeah. on. So, so yeah. you know, it could have been a lot worse, Yes. right? This is scary because there are people around the country, around the world right now who are vulnerable of dying as a consequence of their jobs. That sounds extreme. I don't think what I've just said is extreme based upon what I'm reading. And you, you mentioned duty of care for employers. Yes. Surely this should have been put in place yesterday. Like, is it justifiable for people in shift work to be getting in a car now? Where does the culpability lie? What if they have an accident? Is it is that personal responsibility or is it, no, but my, my employer didn't do anything? Or, and of course, this comes into finance and expenses, but providing taxis. Well, that's what the Royal Perth Hospital, at least when I was visiting uh, Western Australia, would actually do. They would actually provide taxis to get people home. Yeah. And I know there's an expense thing here, but we're talking about lives here, yes. not just that individual's life. So yeah, that really that really hits home big time. Uh, and, and, you know, there's a very poignant description in the book of a police officer um, who contacted me actually several years ago saying, what can we do? You know, I just had a friend who after the night shift fell asleep at the wheel and drove his car into a tree and was killed outright. Um, and nobody's warning us that this is going on. And that's part of the educational piece, because I think if people realised of the danger of doing this, they'd think twice about it yeah. um, and, and try and get some something else in place. I mean, maybe we should be making sure that there's, I don't know, a somewhere to sleep um, uh, uh, after the night shift so you weren't driving yeah. home chronically tired. You know, it's these sorts of things that, that we need to think about. There's, there are, again, we're not going to cure it, but we can mitigate some of the problems. And it's not rocket science. No. It's, it's low-hanging fruit that we could institute now across the workforce and make a difference. I, I don't know when my behaviour around this started to change, but I'm pretty diligent these days over when I'll drive now, I don't need to drive much anymore yeah. for work. I remember in one of the practices I used to work at, you know, there was a probably 45 minutes to an hour commute each way on a motorway and depending on traffic conditions, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm, I appreciate not everyone is in a position to make active decisions, depends on work, finances, all kinds of things. But when I'm weighing up how to get somewhere and whether to take my car or not, how tired I'm going to be absolute plays in my decision making. Mm. And I think, you know, as I think about it, Russell, I think one of the first times it really struck me, it was probably 2015, 2016, I was making a documentary for BBC One. I don't think this bit actually aired in the programme in the end, but is it in Guildford, where is the uh, driving simulators? I think so, yes. I think what, what happened, I can't remember the exact ins and outs, but one of the participants... Yeah. We put them in the simulator and we watched them drive. And then we compared it with one night's sleep deprivation and then alcohol. Yeah. And it was noticeable after sleep deprivation. It's just like you said with that research, it was worse yeah. than when they'd been drinking. Yeah. 
I was like, wait a minute, that's just fatigue. And their their reaction time to things popping up in the simulator to when they press the brake was significantly increased. So yep. I think that possibly has played into my head for many years about that. Um, number two, I think a, th- a point here is that you, you bring up this to microsleeps, mm-hmm. right? Number one, what is a microsleep? And number two, I've heard you say before, Thing about these microsleeps is you don't know they're going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so can you speak to that a little so bit? So it's it's really so microsleep is essentially an uncontrollable and, and an unpredictable episode of sleep, and so you can be going along and you will just fall asleep, and of course that's extremely dangerous if you're if you're driving, um, and uh, so people think they're okay, and then they will just sort of have a, have a microsleep and then uh, a crash or or, or whatever, um, and it's it's frightening because so many people say, oh yeah, you know, I've had one of those. I was sort of nodding, and then I realised I was sort of in the next lane, and but for the grace of God, you know, yeah. you would be killed or you'd have killed somebody else. Well, you mentioned in your book all these things. What Chino? The, the Chernobyl oh, yeah. nuclear disaster was it a Selby crash in Air India? Like yeah. you've mentioned all this stuff. Can you maybe speak yeah, to some I of mean, those? One of the one of the really interesting ones, I think, was the the Air India flight where where the pilot was was landing the aircraft and then fell uncontrollably asleep, and the plane hit the deck um, with a huge loss of life. Now, how do we know he fell asleep? Because you could hear snoring in the cockpit recorder. And, you know, this is not something that he would have wanted to do. But, and, it, and it sort of really illustrates the, the sort of the, the fact that you have no control over these microsleeps. But if you're chronically tired, that's what's going to happen. And, you know, the Exxon Valdez oil tanker that hit the reef off the coast of Alaska. Now, everybody says, oh, it's because the captain was drunk. Well, yes, he was drunk and I, he was asleep in his cabin. And it was a chronically tired, inexperienced individual. And they were telling him, turn the ship you're going to hit the reef but he couldn't process the information because he was so tired and it's a really good illustration again of one's chronic tiredness prevents you from processing information accurately and you know we've sort of touched on this but this is what's so dangerous because the tired brain is so tired it can't detect how tired it is and we can fool and we can fool ourselves that we're okay whereas we're not Russell I want to just ask you your view on my interpretation of my dad's working life. I know from research, you've written a beautiful section on it in in your new book, about the impacts that sleep deprivation has on the immune system. Yeah. And all kinds of other biological processes in the body. My dad, at the age of 57, got lupus. Hmm. Now, it's very unusual for an Asian man, an Asian man who is slim. Hmm. It's, it's not the profile. It's normally Caucasian women hmm. in their 30s or 40s. Hmm. That typically, of course, there's always variation here. Now, for many years, I cared for my dad until he died uh, nine and a half years ago. And I didn't know then what I know now since his death. But I am convinced, like I have a deep knowing that my dad's lifestyle gave him lupus. Now, I'm not asking you to say yes or no on that. I just want to share with you certain aspects of his lifestyle. And I'd be interested in your perspective. My dad slept three nights a week for 30 years. So 
he'd work his day job as a consultant manager or the infirmary, but he'd come home, he'd get ready. And then for four nights a week, Carl would pick him up and he'd be doing cheapy house calls all night. So he'd be out all night. He'd arrive again at 7, 7.15 in the morning, get ready, then drive through traffic into Manchester and work. Mm. So for 30 years, he only slept for three nights a week. So that is sleep deprivation, I would say, at a hyper extreme level. He was chronically stressed, of course. Mm -hmm. I hear what you say about empathy and I think about mom and dad's rows. Um, And yes, you need a genetic susceptibility for autoimmune disease, but I believe my dad had that genetic susceptibility. I know he did because I've, I've done my genetic, I've done some of my testing and I know I have a predisposition as well to certain things. If the environmental conditions are right, my dad had chronic sleep deprivation, chronic stress, something maybe out with your expertise perhaps is I think my dad was very unhappy and had a lot of unexpressed emotions and anger about the state of his life. I've spoken to Dr. Gabor Mate, a physician, about the the link between unexpressed emotion and autoimmune disease. So I'm not necessarily asking you to comment on that, but from what I've shared and from what you know about the immune system and sleep deprivation's impact, do you have any comments at all? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's worth bearing in mind that for our biology to work, you need the right stuff, the right concentration delivered to the right tissues and organs at the right time of day. And of course, our circadian and sleep-wake systems do that. So if you disrupt them, you have uh, a whole bunch of vulnerable points where things could fall apart. And so if you have a genetic susceptibility, then the disrupted biology will, will play to that that problem. And so I wouldn't be at all surprised if there was an element of sleep disruption. Did your father show any signs of dementia later in, in life? It's really hard because his dad was on dialysis for 15 years and all kinds of medications. But yeah, I'd probably say so, little bits. Yeah, uh, No formal diagnosis, but if I think back now, possibly, probably. Yeah. And um, some r- very interesting uh, data is showing that massive sleep-wake disruption in the middle years can increase your risk of dementia uh, in later years. What, what do middle years mean? Um, so, so in your, your, your sort of 40s, 50s, right. um, your, your peak working period, we, you know, where we think of our businessmen, you know, uh, having incredibly shortened um, sleep periods. And it's, it's been well known, it's been documented, but a mechanism has not being clear until relatively recently, or a potential mechanism. Mm. And that's this newly discovered thing, which is the glymphatic system, this sort of um, clearance system within the brain. And whilst we're asleep, um, there's a whole bunch of toxic stuff that is wrapped up and disposed of, not least beta amyloid. And just one night of no sleep has been shown to increase beta amyloid deposition within the brain and increase the concentration in the cerebral spinal fluid. So, you know, there's a there's a very tangible link between sleep disruption in the middle years and and a mechanism that could could predispose to dementia in, in later years. And I think we're going to find increasingly these sorts of connections. Yeah. I mean, what we know about the immune system is that it's it's turned up, or at least the adaptive immune system is turned up during the day when we're most likely to encounter people with bugs or bugs in the environment, and then turned down at night. And again, a really interesting question is, well, why? Why do you have the immune system on full kilter all the time? 
And that's, of course, because if you did, you increase the chances of an autoimmune response. Yeah. And so, you know, disruption of these systems leads to lots of different ripple-through effects. Yeah, there was something in the book where I found fascinating about our skin permeability it's, changes yeah. throughout the day. Could you yeah. speak to that, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, it's, so, so at, at night, um, it's, it's a bit more porous, um, uh, and we're losing... As a result, we're losing water. And so also it becomes itchier. And so we're more likely to scratch our skin at night and, you know, exacerbated by psoriasis and, and dermatitis and things. And so the skin is an incredibly effective barrier keeping bugs out. And that's why the, the main route of, of infection is the lungs. Or, uh, but, uh, but, 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 the, if, but the skin is, again, trying to slough off these old cells um, and presumably the bacteria with them and, in a sense, sort of cleanse itself, but it increases the vulnerability to infection. Does it at that time of day, of course, because we're far less likely to encounter bugs at that particular time. Yeah, there was also this fascinating bit of research you shared where I think if if we get cut or have a scar... Or how well it will heal or how quickly it will heal depends on whether it was done in the morning or the evening. Yeah, I found absolutely. that fascinating. Yes, it, it is. You know, and of course, um, uh, more effective healing during the day than, than at night. Yeah. yeah. This relationship between midlife sleep deprivation, so in our 40s and 50s, and dementia later on, is really something just to pause on. Perhaps because I'm in my early 40s, um, perhaps because I know many listeners and viewers are, but there is this tendency, I think, across society to think we can keep pushing. Yeah. We can keep pushing. We'll get away with it. We'll be okay. Now, I've seen first time with my dad. Yes, it was quite extreme, but nonetheless, I see that pattern. I've seen it in myself before. I've seen it in a lot of my patients and a lot of my friends. You can't keep pushing your biology and not expect a consequence at some point. So I I just wanted to highlight that point. And then I want to, you know, you mentioned sleep and dementia. I know you've done a lot of research on the relationship between sleep and mental health problems. Yes. And I'd love to just talk about this a little bit. You know, is it sleep deprivation that's causing mental health problems? Is it mental health problems that's causing sleep deprivation? Or like most things, is it a bit of both? Well, I think this is really important. And I got into this because I was um, in an elevator with a psychiatrist. And he said to me, oh, yeah, you work on on sleep and stuff. I said, yes, kind of. Um, And um, he said, well, of course, my patients with schizophrenia, um, they have terrible sleep patterns. That's because they don't have a job. So they get up late, uh, miss my clinic, and are socially isolated, and so don't have friends. And I just thought at the time that doesn't make any sense at all to me. And so we we started, um, and Katarina Wolf was one of my colleagues um, who was very much involved in this, to look at sleep-wake patterns in individuals with a diagnosis of schizophrenia, uh, same number of individuals age-matched who are unemployed, and working healthy controls. And the patterns you saw in schizophrenia were some of the most extraordinary observations I've ever made in my career. These weren't just sort of kindly, mildly disrupted. These rhythms were absolutely smashed in every one we have looked at. Um, And so that stuck in my mind. And 
Then with an increasing understanding of the mechanisms that generate sleep and circadian rhythms. So essentially, the sleep, the consciousness sleep flip involves a realignment of every brain neurotransmitter system and an interaction between multiple brain structures. So with these two sort of observations, we thought, well, hang on, why do you always find sleep-wake disruption? and mental health associated. And, and of course, you see it in bipolar, you see it in depression, you see it everywhere. And we came up with a model, which was perhaps at the core within the brain, there are overlapping neural circuits and neurotransmitter pathways between stable sleep and stable mental health. So if you're predisposed to mental health problems, let's say there's a change in a, a neurotransmitter, dopamine, serotonin, that nudges you towards a mental health crisis, but it's going to have a parallel impact upon the sleep-wake systems at some level because they also draw from those neurotransmitter systems. And so we then tested that hypothesis. And so genes which have been linked to human schizophrenia when mutated in a mouse, um, uh, not only showed weird behavioral patterns, uh, but also smashed sleep-wake cycles. So now there's a, an incredible body of evidence for that mechanistic overlap between mental health circuits and sleep circuits. But it's, of course, much more complicated than that because the disrupted sleep via its impact upon um, psychosocial health, um, one's, one's ability to process information, that negative salience, and of course the sort of physiological disruption could uh, exacerbate the extent to which you're experiencing mental health problems. And of course the mental health problems will feed back and make the sleep worse. And so you can very rapidly go from sort of this, this sort of overlap at the middle, we know there's a ge genetic predisposition to certain mental health conditions, but it can then amplify massively as a result of these positive feedback loops, the mental health making the sleep worse, the sleep making the mental health worse. So you can exaggerate it completely. So we then thought, well, hang on, if we try to stabilize sleep-wake in individuals exhibiting mental health problems, Will we reduce the severity of those mental health problems? So working with Dan Freeman and Colin Espy, a big paper was published a few years ago in The Lancet, uh, which showed that if you can even partially stabilize the sleep-wake in individuals, you can reduce levels of paranoia and hallucinatory experiences. So I think we can, we can think of the sleep-wake systems as being a new therapeutic target for mental health. Now, what's fascinating for me is that we've known about the association between mental health problems and, and sleep disruption back at, you know, Kraepelin's time in the 1880s. He talked about it way before the introduction yeah. of antipsychotics and, and all of the other sort of um, issues. And so it has a long history. And uh, of course, the life expectancy of individuals with severe mental health uh, is hugely reduced. And they all report, you know, what do they report? Um, uh, sort of coronary heart disease, obesity, type 2 diabetes, all of these major health issues dismissed as a, as a byproduct of the antipsychotics. But actually, it's a major contributing factor to that will be the, the poor sleep. And it's never addressed. Yeah. Um, and so this, I'm, I'm hoping that this will, will, will also provide a, a change in our mindset to, to these extraordinarily vulnerable individuals and to take their sleep-wake disruption seriously because we have empirical evidence yeah. that even partial stabilization can reduce the severity of um, those symptoms. You're effectively saying bipolar or depression or anxiety, right? 
instead of just accepting it as, oh yes, people with these conditions don't sleep well, it's like, mm. well, hold on a minute. What if we go straight in and give sleep education or sleep CBC or whatever yes. therapy we might deem appropriate? And then if you think about research, I mean, I remember reading a paper, Russell, where it showed that maybe if you go from is it eight hours a night to five hours a night, your amygdala, the emotional part of your brain, may be up to 50% more reactive. Yeah. I think, well, that's kind of anxiety. You know, if yep. your amygdala is on high alert, you're anxious. Yes. And sleep deprivation by itself will make you anxious. Yeah. So before we go to anti-anxiety medications or... Exactly. It's like, why don't we tackle the sleep? Or why exactly. don't we at least try to? And, and it's because uh, the failure to educate our, our general practitioners and indeed our, the entire um, you know, doc, doctor and nurse community, um, it's just not part of the curriculum. And in yeah. fairness, um, it's only fairly recently that this stuff has become really clear. Yeah. Um, and, and again, that was part of the, the reason for, for, for writing, you know, Lifetime, because wanting to make it accessible to, you know, not only medical practitioners, but everybody, so we can take some ownership of this, of this field, this yeah. critically important field. I mean, this is really quite profound, because what we're talking about here is sleep as therapy. Yes, I mean, this was really sort of shown, shown to me when we were working with, on a project with, with um, Guy Goodwin, who's a psychiatrist at Oxford. And he was able to identify individuals as a result of family history and questionnaires, whether they were at high risk or low risk of developing bipolar. So these are young, young individuals in their, their teens, usually. And what was absolutely fascinating is the sleep-wake patterns of those at low risk were perfectly normal. But all of those who were at high risk were already showing a disrupted sleep-wake pattern mm -hmm. prior to any clinical diagnosis of bipolar. Now, if we can use this as an early marker, yeah. and then, of course, in therapy... The earlier we, we know something's going to go wrong, the earlier the chance of an intervention. So wouldn't it be amazing if we could identify those individuals at risk, we could institute sleep-wake stabilization protocols that may either delay the onset of these conditions or knock the brain into a di different developmental trajectory whereby it won't necessarily go yeah. uh, inevitably towards that uh, condition. So again, I think there's, you know, we're, we're, we're just sort of unmasking all this incredibly important stuff that could have a major impact upon health yeah. and well-being uh, as, uh, in the coming decades. Let's talk about sex and sleep. Yeah. Um, you write a little bit about it, of course, it's a topic of huge interest to many people. Yeah. And I guess there's two facets to it the way I see it. One is to do with fertility, mm. right? There is an ideal time to have sex from a fertility standpoint. So I think it'd be great to talk about that. Yep. But then I think also the relationship between sex and sleep, the onset of sleep, I think is also really interesting. Yeah. So... Um, in whatever way you want to, well, maybe start to unpack I, I, that I mean, for me. I, again, this was something that I wasn't particularly familiar with until I did the research for the book, because I'm not often asked these questions in public lectures. What was absolutely striking is that every element in the regulation of the female menstrual cycle involves a circadian clock, whether it's the timed release of hormones, of the, the neurohormones in the hypothalamus, whether it's the pituitary gland, or whether it's the receptors in the ovary, for example, responding to those, those, those hormones. And so, 
you've got, for example, very strong evidence that disruption of the menstrual cycle is much worse in night shift workers. Um, the chances of miscarriage is higher in night shift workers. It's not hugely significant, but it is significant. And you find that in the airline industry, either pilots or flight attendants have fertility problems. So there's, there's clearly a relationship between the circadian system uh, and the menstrual cycle to produce this extraordinary, exquisitely timed ovulation and the release of the, release of the egg. And it's been shown that sperm needs to be in the reproductive tract in the fallopian tube around about two to three days prior to ovulation to have the greatest chances of success. So there's, 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 there's that, there's the, the circadian system interacting with the hormones that drive the menstrual cycle, yeah. uh, which is, and, and that precise window. And, and, and that was really fascinating. And then you've got this study suggesting, well, it doesn't really matter. You know, humans don't have any real discrimination. They'll just do it whenever they want to do it. Um, and then there's this whole literature on the fact that, in fact, our behavior is subtly altered. So that actually um, during that sort of pre-ovulatory window, men are less discriminating of women um, and are much more likely to seek out you know, copulatory experiences. Um, and females are much more discriminatory. They're far more likely to have an affair during that, that window. Wow. And they look for male, they're more interested in male features. So, for example, um, a deeper voice, a stronger jawline, all that sort of thing. Wow. I mean, it's stuff that we never really think about, but, but there, is, there is that still biology, you know, underpinning it. Wow. So, so yeah. Um, but also, um, male fertility uh, seems to peak in the morning. Testosterone rises and has a you know, morning peak. And that's where sperm motility is uh, at its peak. And anyway, I mentioned this, I think, on the Chris Evans uh, breakfast show. And I got this email uh, several a month or so later um, from a couple of young medics who said, um, you know, we've been trying for the last two years um, to um, conceive. And, uh, um, you know, as medics, we thought we tried everything, but we've forgotten circadian rhythms. So we started, um, and their words, not mine, started doing it in the morning. And the first, and the first time we did it, you know, my, my partner got pregnant. Um, now, I mean, an N of one is an N of one, so you can make of it what you will. But I was actually thrilled <laughs> that, that 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 bit of biology had been translated. At Congratulations! Least in one case. <laughs> yes, I know. even that that, that that line we forgot about circadian rhythms. Yeah. I'm not surprised. Like we didn't learn anything about circadian rhythms yeah. at medical school. I don't think they still do. No. Right? This is a you know massive, massive issue. Yeah. So. Regarding fertility, super, super interesting. I'm sure that's very relevant to many people listening, like who are actively trying to conceive. It could be something that mm. has practical value for them, or people can share it with people who they also know who are struggling. Uh, yeah. That might be helpful. In terms of, we mentioned the problems with sleep deprivation, and um, you've written a section in the book how the timing of sex could oh, potentially yes. help people with sleep. Yeah, I, I mean, I think anecdotally, um, the reports that, you know, sex relaxes individuals and they're more likely to fall asleep. And, and there are now some studies suggesting yeah. that um, there, are, there are hormones that are, that are released which actually promote sleepiness. And so, yes, uh, consensual sex, of course, um, it has been shown to promote sleep. Yeah. And also masturbation as well. You have once said that... Many people don't have a sleep problem, mm. 
they've got a stress problem. Yep. And I guess sex, intimacy, you know, switching off, it all kind of feeds into that a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely, yes. And, and, and the bonding, following sex, um, uh, you know, relaxes individuals and brings them closer together. I, I, I think that one thing that's very important to distinguish is fatigue from sleepiness. Um, sleepiness is cured by sleep. Fatigue is this overwhelming chronic tiredness that even given the, the ability to sleep longer, it doesn't go away. And it's very important that people distinguish between the two because fatigue, as you know, um, is indicative of some underlying health problem. Mm. And I spoke to somebody fairly recently, really fascinating, and this is um, a really high-powered individual, very, very active, but she has an immune issue and so is chronically fatigued. And so she can't get done what she wants to do during the day. So she'll fall asleep fine, and then she'll wake up in the middle of the night and we should talk about that because mm. that's perfectly normal to wake up in the middle yeah, of the sure. night and most of us fall back to sleep again or are awake for a short time and then fall back to sleep again. But because of her um, stress, because she couldn't do what she wanted to do, she couldn't fall back to sleep again. And so uh, it, uh, this was a really interesting... So the fatigue was, was it, not allowing her to do what she wanted to do, which meant that she was immensely stressed, which meant that... It was screwing up her, her sleep problems. And so, uh, yeah, I think that so many instances of... I think stress is, is one of the major issues in poor sleep. And as we've just said, yeah. it's not a sleep problem, it's a, it's a stress problem. And that's why sort of winding down um, towards the end of the day, leaving work at home, if you possibly can... Um, and doing something different, whether it's going to the gym, whether it's doing whatever, is so important. And that's, of course, been the huge problem um, during the COVID epidemic, yeah. where people's workspace and, and home space were the same. And that's probably part of the reason why sleep um, has been reported to be worse in, in certain sectors. Yeah, I mean, you spoke before about various scents and what people associate with sleep. And, you know, we know the brain is an associative organ. And so... Yeah. If you are sitting with your laptop doing your work emails in bed, what does your brain associate with bed in the bedroom? Precisely. And of course, so many bedrooms became studies. Yeah, and, and I understand that it depends on your space and it's not yes. it's not a criticism, it's just more a an explanation. It's more an explanation that this yeah. can be problematic. I think, you know, I mentioned that the 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 low lux amber bulbs that I have in my bedside lamps. And I think there's a biological explanation in terms of the lower lux, it's not pushing my circadian rhythm back, my clock's back, sure. But and, I actually think... And critically um, reducing your alertness, which is probably the main main factor. Okay, so it's yep. reducing my alertness yep. because of the lower light. Exactly. Higher the light, greater the alertness, and the more, more difficult it is to get off to sleep. Okay, so that's fascinating and I guess speaks to, well... So many bathroom mirrors are <laughs> yes. like bathrooms oh. are full of these bright LEDs, right? Yeah. So what do people do before well, bed? I know. I mean, it's, I think it's absolutely spectacularly ironic that what's the last thing we do before we go to bed? We stand in the most brightly lit room of the house, which is the bathroom, and then we look into an illuminated mirror as we clean our teeth. Um, yeah. And, you know, we talked about a, 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 an investment opportunity in developing night shift food. Another uh, a perfect investment opportunity is developing a bathroom mirror which has bright 
alerting light in the morning and you switch it to the evening, which is dimmer, less alerting light um, in, in the evening. Yeah, I mean, it's simple. Yeah. The technology's <laughs> there to do it. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's that's something else we can think about. What, how, you know, what sort of light are we exposed to there? But yeah. speaking about these bedside lamps, I think also, as well as the biological explanation, I think there's also... I guess something behavioral about them for me in terms of its it signals to me, oh, it's now evening time, it's yeah. rest time, it's not stimulation time. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, I it's think that sometimes winding down. It's, we assume that we can go from a fully conscious state. Yeah. You know, going go, the gear analogy. You know, going from first gear to fifth gear. You can't yeah. do it. Um, you have to do it through stages. And again, winding down from the wake state to the sleep state requires an adjustment. Um, and whether that's as, as you were saying, you you enjoy reading um, some novel uh, under relatively dim light before going to bed. Some people listen to music or something else that they find relaxing. And it's and it's it's adopting those behaviours that make the transition easier. And again. And it's, 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 as you were saying, it's the brain knows what's coming next and what's coming next is sleep. And yeah. so it can prepare itself. It's what we do with our kids, right? We give them a routine. You know, we, we don't, read a story. We yeah. read a story. We, mm. we don't, as I was saying to us, we don't give them a ton of sugar, put the lights on bright, <laughs> speak loudly. No, no, we yeah. do the opposite of all those things. But as adults, we kind of think we can somehow... Until their favourite uncle visits. You know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we think we can override them, but we can't. Oh, Russell, I could speak to you for hours. As we come towards the end of this conversation, a few things I wanted to uh, briefly cover, if possible. Sleep trackers. Uh, yeah. Mm. Um, any, any view on sleep trackers? Well, I think we should define where they could be useful. So um, most sleep trackers, uh, if you use them to determine roughly when you went to sleep, um, how many times you woke up in the night, for example, and when you finally woke up. So your sleep timing, your sleep duration, and your sleep fragmentation. That's a tried and tested technology, and it's what we use in the lab. The problem is that most of the, the trackers that people wear these days try and do more than that. They say, oh, you've had lots of good deep sleep, or you haven't had enough REM sleep. And and for that, they're completely useless. And um, they, can, they can generate huge anxiety. Um, so, so I spoke to an individual uh, again before lockdown who said, I'm not getting, I'm not getting enough slow-wave sleep. I'm really anxious about it. In fact, what I do, I set my alarm clock for four o'clock in the morning, wake my fi- myself up to, to find out how much slow-wave sleep I've had. I mean, that's the kind of level yeah. of anxiety that these things are, um, are developing. And in fact... So, so what, what does it really tell us if we've had lots of slow wave or lots of REM sleep? We don't really know. And the algorithms, first of all, are not very good at detecting that. Um, and they've been largely worked out for a bunch of 20-year-olds in California. Um, uh, and, and, of course, our sleep changes <laughs> hugely as we age. Um, and they're not going to work for somebody in their 70s or indeed, you know, somebody younger. Um, so until we got, you know, really sophisticated artificial intelligence, you know, plotting, uh, uh, extracting information to get sleep phase, they're, they're, not, they're not accurate. Yeah. The, and the other, the other problem I have is, so what? You know, do we really know what slow wave sleep is all about? Well, sort of. I mean, we know that if people are selectively deprived of slow wave sleep, their memory isn't as good and their problem solving isn't as good. And if people are selectively 
deprived of REM sleep than their emotional processing. They show a bit more anxiety during the day. But in a sense, we we don't really know. Yeah. And and so I do get very frustrated because we become, as a society, finally m- more sensitive to the importance of sleep. But what's happened is that a large sector have become very anxious about their sleep. Yeah. And, you know, there's these sort of sergeant majors screaming, you've got to get eight hours, you've got to do this, you can't do that. And we have to define what works for us. Yeah. And, and in fact, so many people think is the sleep is what you get, but actually it's a highly dynamic uh, a bit of our biology and we have the ability to work with it yeah. and optimise it. And I think that's, that's something that I... And, and, and the sleep apps, you know, d- drive us in the opposite direction. So I, I get a bit worried. I mean, you know, in principle, good idea because uh, if you... It's like losing weight. If you weigh yourself every morning um, uh, and you see you've lost weight, that'll reinforce your changed eating behaviour. And if you wanted to get longer sleep or different timing of sleep, as we've kind of touched on, it would be useful metric to say, yes, well, that changed behaviour has worked. So, you know, getting that more morning yeah. light meant I did go to, be- to bed earlier and kind of got up earlier. So, in principle, they could be useful. But it's worth bearing in mind, none of the, um, the sleep federations endorse any of the commercially available wow. devices. And none of them are FDA approved. Yeah. So we're a long way for, for them being, I would say, useful. Yeah, th- thank you for that. That was very, very clear. I mean, that weight loss analogy, if we take it one step further, yes, if you see every day your weight is going down, let's say you are tracking that and you think that's a reasonable thing to track... Sure, it can motivate behavior, but on that one day where it goes up, and I, I read a study once which said that actually our weights can vary, between, I think three to 10 pounds in any given day, I think it said, maybe yeah. three to five pounds, but yeah. just from fluid and all kinds of other yeah. stuff. But I thought, well, actually it can have a really toxic effect when you're, you're making all the right changes for yes. your health and maybe for excess weight, but actually one day it happens to actually, go the wrong way. Yes, good point. I mean, what's the point? Yeah, what's, what's the, the point? Yeah. Well, I think it could be problematic. And I have a real concern over trackers in general. I'm not at all saying they can't be useful for some people. Yeah. I understand it probably depends on personality type a little bit in terms of what you do with that data. I do have a sleep tracker. I don't think I've used it for about six months. Um, it was considered one of the good ones. And I have no problem with it. You know, it was useful. There were certain things that I felt it helped me understand, which is if I eat late, it appears to really have an impact mm. on various things. But I kind of learned what I needed to learn from it. And one day, Russell, I remember waking up feeling pretty good. And I looked at my sleep score and it was rubbish. <laughs> and then my mind starts to play tricks on me. Mm. I was like, oh, and then I thought, God, am I starting to feel tired? Like, because I'm tired or because of what I've just seen. Mm. I thought, you know what? Screw this. I'm not, I don't need yeah. to use this anymore. I need to tune into myself. And I personally, I've seen, even with blood pressure monitors, I've seen patients over the years tie themselves up in knots and have health anxiety. So I guess... I would just urge a note of caution as well for people. I think that's absolutely right. And we've talked about how do you know if you're getting enough sleep, what the factors are, that's the most important yeah. thing. And these are questions we can answer for ourselves without the need of a, of a health health tracker. A good, yeah. good, good friend of mine, Ken Wright, who's um, University of Colorado, um, he uh, starts his, um, his class and, you know, it's a large number of students with uh, who here has ever used a sleep tracker? 
And, you know, essentially the whole class sort of put their hand up. And they said, who now is, is using one routinely? And about three hands that go up. And, you know, these are smart people. They learn pretty quickly that these devices just don't work. Yeah. Um, and you, as you've discovered, you, 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 you embrace the knowledge from your own personal experiences. Yeah, yeah. to be a human. And to yes. really experience what that means. Um, just very quickly, a lot of people will often say about light exposure. Well, what about, let's say Scandinavia, for example. Uh, I guess that's top of mind because I've been recently, the hotel light in which I stayed had pretty poor blackout blinds. And so I woke up in the night mm. and then I thought it was morning and I looked at my watch, it was 3am. It, it was bright at 3am. How have people in Northern Hemisphere countries or, or other countries where there are these wildly different day and night cycles, have they evolved to that? Have they adapted to that? Do we know? Well, the short answer is no. But let me tell you about a, a group of animals that have. And um, uh, from the University of Tromsø, they've looked at Arctic reindeer. And during the two months of constant light, they turn their biological clocks off. And during the two months of constant dark, they turn their clocks off. They have no adaptive value. There is no day-night cycle. Um, and in fact, during the winter months, these reindeer uh, feed whenever the weather conditions permit. And during the summer, of course, they have to feed constantly to put on enough fat to survive the winter. So there are instances oh, where wow. clocks have been turned off because they have no adaptive value. What about humans? Well, we've, of course, been there for a very... Well, the Europeans who've moved into those, those, um, those, those places have, have shown no signs of adaptation. In fact, you know, in Tromso, a family will get up um, and then they'll go in the, in winter, for example, into a room where there's there's artificial light. So they'll get that morning photon shower, um, and so so they can try and stabilize. And and they use very effect, effective blackout curtains. Wow. Now, what's going on with those peoples, the native peoples who've been there for thirty, forty thousand years, isn't clear. Yeah. Um, and it may well be that there has been some adaptation, but we're we don't know. Russell, my brain is going so fast in so many different directions. Um, out of respect to your time, I'm going to stop firing questions at you and I hope I can persuade you at some point in the future for a part two. <laughs> um, to finish off this conversation, on an upbeat note, um, for people who feel inspired to prioritise their sleep, to get on top of their sleep, to basically go, you know what, Maybe it was a bit about being in your 40s to 50s and not pushing it. Whatever it might have been that connected with them. This podcast is called Feel Better, Live More. When we feel better in ourselves, we get more out of our lives. Of course, when we're going to sleep better, we're going to get more out of every aspect of our lives. So do you have any final words of wisdom, advice, practical, whatever it might be to leave uh, my listeners with? I mean, I, I think the key thing for me is that, you know, sleep is like shoe size. Um, one size does not fit all. And we as individuals need to work out what's best for us um, because there's huge individual variation and our sleep will change. So good example would be waking up in the middle of the night. Um, so what's happened uh, is that our, uh, our sleep episode has been compressed and so we, we tend to not wake up in the middle of the night. But under 
uh, in societies where there's no electric light and indeed from the literature, uh, we know our sleep patterns in the recent past were very different. Mm-hmm. So the literature from the pre-industrial age uh, talks about I had a wonderful first sleep um, or uh, and sleep was biphasic, uh, going to sleep waking up, then going back to sleep again, or indeed polyphasic, which is uh, you know, several periods of, of waking up. And because we don't know that, when people wake up in the middle of the night, they think, oh my goodness, that's it. I'm never going to get back to sleep again. I might as well start doing my emails now and um, start drinking coffee. And, and, and the key thing is that waking up in the middle of the night need not mean the end of sleep. In fact, that polyphasic or biphasic sleep pattern is what all mammals experience. Wow. And so this, again, single block of, of, of consolidated one block of sleep is not the natural state. That is such an important message, isn't it? The amount of people who feel bad that mm. they wake up. I, I know the amount of questions that get fired at me mm. about this. You know, is it okay? And you're you're clearly saying, no, this is not only okay, it's very, very normal. Yeah. I guess this speaks to the problems with having our smartphones in our room, just yeah. looping back. I don't know, you mentioned, and not in this conversation, I've heard you say, about your relationship with your BlackBerry when you were in Australia and actually had to ultimately <laughs> yeah. leave it in your lab. Yes, I, I have, I, I'm just sort of, I think they were, used to be called Crackberries. Um, and, and yeah, I was in Australia. And so I would do my Australian uh, emails on, on the BlackBerry. Then of course the European ones would come in and then the North American. So, so if you're jet lagged, um, and, and I remember, you know, this, this, this red blinking light, who those, those who had a BlackBerry. And I was so weak, I, I, I could not, I, first of all, it was by the bed. And of course I then moved it very quickly to the room next door and that was hopeless because I'd wake up and then I'd go next door and so um, I left it in the lab and of course as a result I got much better sleep (laughs) yeah because when you wake up if you're not getting your mind actively engaged back into work you a lot of us probably don't realize that we may well have fallen asleep again Yes, had we and, not done and that. that's what most of us do. In yeah. fact, you know, we go through cycles of REM and non-REM and we naturally wake from, from REM sleep and then we fall back to sleep again without even noticing it. Yeah. Now, that wake-up period can be, you know, a, a few seconds so you don't notice it or it may be 30 minutes. But the chances are you will go back to sleep as long as you stay relaxed, you keep the lights low and you do something that is not alerting the brain. And as I say, because we haven't ever passed this information on, you know, people don't know when they think, oh my goodness, that's the end of sleep. I'm sleeping terribly. And in fact, if you stay calm, um, it's fine. The other thing, another tip, I guess, would be illuminated alarm clocks. Because many people clock watch. They'll wake up and then they think, oh my God, I've only got two hours before the alarm goes off. It doesn't matter. You know, if you go back to sleep, you know, and you have that additional two hours or half an hour. Again, it doesn't matter. So if you have an illuminated clock, put some tape over the front of it. The only thing that matters, I guess, is the alarm, not how long you've got before the alarm goes off. Which brings us back to the start of the conversation, which is alarm clocks stop the single most behavioral, (laughs) single most important behavioral experience we have. Russell, it has been such a joy talking to you. Honestly, this book, Lifetime, The New Science of the Body Clock and How It Can Revolutionize Your Sleep and Health. It's frankly brilliant. It's so, so good. I hope everyone goes out and gets a copy. And uh, look, it's been a great chat. I really appreciate all the work, all the research over the years. And as I say, I hope I can persuade you for a part two at some point. (laughs) It's been great, Roman. Thank you so much. 
really hope you enjoyed that conversation. As always, do have a think about one thing that you can take away and start applying into your own life. Now, before you go, just want to let you know about Friday 5. It's my free weekly email containing five simple ideas to improve your health and happiness. I share exclusive insights in this email that I do not share anywhere else, including health advice, interesting articles or videos that I've been consuming, and quotes that have caused me to stop and reflect. And in a world of endless emails, it really is delightful that many of you tell me it is one of the only weekly emails that you actively look forward to receiving. If that sounds like something you would like to receive each Friday, you can sign up for free at drchatterjee.com forward slash Friday 5. And if you are new to my podcast, you may be interested to know that I have written five books that have been bestsellers all over the world, covering all kinds of different topics, including happiness, nutrition, movement, stress, sleep, behavior change, weight loss, and so much more. Do take a moment to check them out. They're all available as paperbacks, ebooks, and as audiobooks, which I am narrating. And if you enjoyed today's episode, it's always appreciated. If you can take a moment to share this podcast with your friends and family or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week. And please note that if you want to listen to this show without any adverts, that option is now available for a small monthly fee on Apple and on Android. All you have to do is click on the link in the episode notes in your podcast app. And always remember, you are the architects of your own health. Making lifestyle changes always worth it. Because when you feel better, you live more.